So we're starting a new or we started a new series last week. Uh, it's called "He's That Guy," and we're looking at the rule-breaking habits of Jesus. Things that Jesus did that in the first century would be deemed inappropriate. They would be deemed offensive and or odd at the very least. Uh, and Jesus, one of those habits that Jesus had, and this is going to be my favorite message in the series, is that he had a habit of liking people who were not like other people and whom other people did not like. He not only liked them, he went out of his way to find them. And this was probably the number one thing uh, that Jesus did that irritated the Pharisees, that just drove them insane, and it caused a lot of the conflict between Jesus and these church folks. See, he spent time with people that the Pharisees would avoid and taught that should be avoided. Now, Pharisee means separated one, and the Pharisees had good intentions, at least it seemed at the beginning they did, and as, their, uh, as they went decades and centuries went on, their, their focus changed, but they, they, were, they basically followed the law religiously. So their religion was following laws. There were over 600 commandments in the Old Testament, and they turned those 600 commandments into thousands of regulations. So their intent was not to break any laws of God. So if there was a law like, do not cross past a line, they would say, instead of flirting near the line, let's create several other standards and regulations that would keep us as far away from the line as possible because they didn't want to break any command of God. Because they believed by following the law religiously that God will look down upon Israel and Israel would be saved because of their good deeds. That was really the intent and the reason for why they did these things. And the reason they were called separated ones, the reason they were called the Pharisees, is that they wanted to separate themselves from those who were not religious, hoping that God would only look at them and see the, the, the great uh, 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 pious and uh, great purity of what they were doing, and God would kind of ignore those who were not following the law, and God would be pleased with, with Israel. And so by doing that, what they were doing, though, is they were creating some boundaries and some lines that people weren't allowed to cross. Now, Jesus comes along, and he decides to, in many ways, ignore and 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 in other ways speak against what the Pharisees were teaching. Jesus did these things frequently. Jesus would hang out with children and he even was he even would put children first ahead of other people. Now in Jesus' day, small children were quite literally the least of these. In the first century class system, children were the lowest rung on the ladder. They were viewed as bringing no value to society at all. But Jesus' idea of children and childhood was radically different from what was normal in his day. Jesus made faith child-friendly. He even spent time with kids. He invited kids into the conversation, and he would bring children into the spotlight when everyone else would want to push them aside. Because it wasn't just children were to be seen and not heard. Children were to not be seen or heard. They just were of no importance in the first century. They were the lowest rung on the ladder. Jesus also shared his life with women. 
He opened, up his, he opened his mind and heart to women, and he loved the company of women. Now, in the first century class system, women were almost property. They were only one rung above children in that way. Uh, they could uh, not exist on their own. They had to have a husband or a male relative who held responsibility for, for that person, for that woman uh, in life. But Jesus decides to bestow compassion, and he chooses to empower women like no one else in the ancient world. And probably worst of all his offenses that the Pharisees could see is that Jesus made friends with sinners and with enemies of the day. Now, the people that Jesus befriended were not those who skipped their morning devotions. It wasn't those who just decided to sleep in and not go to church. Jesus was drawn towards real sinners. He was drawn towards those who had done nothing to earn any kind of salvation, which the, which the Pharisees felt was what they were doing. They were living the religious law. They were, their religion was law-following. And so these were the men and the women who were furthest from God like the woman at the well or the demon-possessed man, which we don't have time to talk about. But these people were not even on a rung on the ladder. If children were the lowest rung and women were the next rung up, these folks didn't even have a ladder. And what drove the Pharisees insane is that he would often spend dinner and meals with these people, the ones that were so far away from God. He would eat dinner with beggars and tax collectors who were considered traitors to the national cause because they were collecting taxes for Rome. He would have meals with prostitutes who were religiously, socially, and culturally taboo. And in the first century, to share a meal with someone was a promise of peace, trust, fraternity, and forgiveness. It was a symbol of a shared life. It's not, it's not the way we would have meals today. Like, I look for every opportunity to go out to lunch. All right? If anyone, y'all want to meet with me, if I, I will always say, what, breakfast or lunch? Right? Because that's a meal out. And <laughs> it's a... It's, it's awesome, right? I like meals out. Uh, it's more than that. In the first century, to share a meal with someone was to make say that you were family. It was to say that you were united, you were connected, you were uh, a sharing a life together. So when Jesus would have these meals with these people who were furthest from God, he was making a public statement about the inclusivity of the kingdom. That he was saying at these meals that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. And all of this would be incredibly disturbing to the Pharisees who were living the opposite lifestyle. They were saying that we're separated. We live separately from those people. And Jesus came along and said, I want to live and be part of any community with those people. See, if the Pharisees were here today, they'd likely say he's that guy who had no standard of living. He's that guy who put kids on his lap and he invited women into the inner circle and he hung out with the lowest of the low. He's the guy that welcomes and loves everybody. 
Uh, so uh, we're going to be reading from uh, Mark chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screen, uh, verses 14 through 17. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and it turns out that we're going to be reading one verse at a time, and then we're going to break it up. So uh, the story, uh, I believe, will flow well, but uh, it's not going to be read altogether. So Matthew, cha- uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, As he, it's Jesus, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now, Levi is the Hebrew name for Levi. <laughs> but the Greek name is Matthew. Okay, so Matthew, Levi could be interchangeable here. Mark chooses to use his Hebrew name. He says he saw Levi, or Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi is a Hebrew word, like I said, which means attached. Many believe it's connected to the Levites or the Old Testament priests. And so Levi was named by his parents. He was named priest. Matthew is a Greek word, which means gift of God. And naming someone, remember, is a legacy in the first century, is a legacy that's given to someone. It's not necessarily the way we do it today. For some of us, it may be. But in the first century, it was always that way. When you name someone priestly, and every time you say, hey, priestly, it's time to come in, what does that child begin to believe about themselves? That, there, that there, there's some kind of connection that I should have, an attachment that I should have to God. But Matthew, or Levi, becomes a tax collector. And so in the margin of my Bible, I've written down what happened in Levi's life after being called, hey, attached to God, hey, priestly. What led him to become a tax collector? We don't know, but we find that Levi is at the tax collecting booth. A first century tax collector is an extortionist. Uh, How Levi would get uh, get the job is he would put in a bid to the Roman government, and the Roman government, and he would say, I can collect this amount of money from this area of town. And if the Roman government liked that bid, he would get the bid, and then he would be told that that's the amount of money annually he had to give to Rome. Anything he collected above and beyond that was his salary. So you can imagine how tax collectors would would be collecting their taxes, and they would extort people out of money. There's no written code here. No one knows how much they owe until they meet with the tax collector to determine what's owed. And so Matthew was making money by extorting from the people who lived in his town. Not only was he doing that, but he is a Jew who is now selling out to the Roman oppressive government. So he's an extortionist, and he is someone who's a traitor to his own people. And Jesus saw something in Matthew. And he challenges Matthew to have a career decision. He says, follow me and be my disciple. And Matthew leaves everything behind. 
We assume he quit his job. Maybe he handed in his resignation. Maybe he took an early retirement. He trades his tax-collecting life to become a student of Jesus and eventually becomes one of the biographers of Jesus and a New Testament writer, and he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the next sentence is the important part in this morning's story. Verse 15 says, Later. We don't know how much later. Maybe later that afternoon, maybe later that week, maybe later that month. All we know is that later, sometime after he's challenged to follow Jesus, later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. And then Mark includes a little parenthetical statement there. He says, there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. So Matthew throws a party, maybe to celebrate his retirement from tax collecting, maybe to celebrate his new job as a disciple, maybe to celebrate all that he had received from Jesus in this one engagement. He'd received acceptance, right? He's a traitor. He's received a second chance. He's received a new way to live. He's received a larger story. He's been invited into a better life. Maybe he's throwing a party because this encounter and relationship with Jesus was so profound that he wants his friends to meet Jesus. Maybe the tax collectors, when they're at their tax collector meeting on Monday morning, are saying, why would you quit your job, Matthew? Or they're fighting over that money that's now been made available from the Roman government. And he says, I can't explain it, but you got to come to this party. You've got to hear this guy and meet this guy. We don't know why. We only know that Matthew throws a party and he invites Jesus and his disciples, and he invites tax collectors and other sinners that Mark describes them as, and we can discern that Matthew had a wide, expansive group of friends, and they range from the Son of God to disreputable sinners. That's quite a wide group of friends, isn't it? He had work friends, family friends, and church friends. And he wanted everyone to come to the party. So then the story continues. They're at the party. They're at their gathered for dinner. And it says that when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Now, you see, as I said, the Pharisees would not, they wouldn't be anywhere near the kinds of people that Jesus is hanging out with. There would be a line and a line and another line and lots of lines separating them so that they were never accidentally in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong crowd. And so they don't engage at the dinner because they wouldn't be that close. They're somewhere outside. And they're getting a message in, or they're just grumbling. They're saying, what is he doing? 
why would he partner with, why would he say that he is united with these kind of people, with this kind of crowd? Those who are furthest away from God. Why does he eat with such scum? Why does he share his life with people like that, is what they're asking. Verse 17, when Jesus heard this, and so, like I said, they didn't speak to him directly. Somehow, word got to Jesus. I imagine he's in the midst of the party. And he told them, he says, send this message back. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Duh. Right? Get it? And then he says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And those are the two words that are important in that phrase. Thinking and knowing. That there are people who think they are good, and there are people who know they are not. And Jesus is attracted, is attracted to people who know they need something else. So I was in a Bible study about three decades ago. And this Bible study, there was a statement made by a pastor that changed how I decided I was going to do ministry. And it has changed how I do it ever since. Uh, he was. He said, look at your Bible. And he said, you'll notice that in your Bible there are margins. I'm like, yeah, there are. That's, again, a really obvious statement. And he said, what you'll notice about the margins is the margins are empty, the margins are blank, the margins are just there, and all the action is in the center. And he said, but Jesus always was drawn towards the margins. He lived in the margins. He spent time on the edges of society. He hung out with marginalized people. And the reason that changed the way I do ministry is I was a youth pastor. And at the time, youth ministry in the 80s was this. You, uh, and Young Life kind of uh, branded this. And it's not a bad thing. No, it is a bad thing. All right. Uh, they decided that youth ministry was best done like this. You have to get the most popular kid, the one who is, has the most influence in that community. And when you have that kid or that group of kids, all the other kids will want to come because they'll be drawn, they'll be attracted to that kid. Because if that kid makes Jesus cool, all the other kids are going to go, I want to be with cool Jesus too. And this guy told me, Jesus would have been a horrible young life leader. Because that's not who he went after. And he challenged me with the margin in this way. He said, Rick, when you're preparing messages, when you're getting, he didn't say this directly to me, I, I put this all together. When, you're, when, you're, when I'm putting messages together, he said, think of the least and in youth ministry, you know who the least is? There are none in this room, so I can say middle school boys. All right? 
No kidding, because they don't want to be there. They don't want anything to do with what you're doing. And so if I could get a middle school boy to pay attention to what I was talking about, then that meant the rest of the crowd was in. Because I just had to get the middle school boy. And so when I was preparing prairie messages, I always think, what's a middle school boy thinking? That's scary. But I would think about that and then prepare the message that way, right? Well, now that I'm hanging out with older people, I had to change. What's the middle school boy? It's really not much different. It's most men, all right? Because we don't change much after middle school, all right? It's why fart jokes are still funny to us, all right? Because we don't change, all right? And so when I'm preparing messages, know what I do now? I know that there are men who come to church because their wife, their kids, or somebody's making them go. And I try to figure out, all right, what are the questions they're going to ask about this or they're going to ask about faith? Because if I can get the middle school boy, everyone else is going to be alone. And so Jesus lived in the margins. He looked for people who don't belong anywhere completely. He was looking for people who don't fit in to a single group completely. People who were living in between worlds. And so as I look at this story, some first thoughts that I have, a quick summary of this interaction between Jesus and Matthew is that we can look beyond what's worst about somebody because Matthew up front was a tax collector collecting from, for the Roman government and taking money from his own people. We can look beyond that, look beyond the worst of someone, that we can look and see their best qualities. And while we don't know what it was that Jesus saw in Matthew, we know that Jesus saw something. And we can speak blessing into someone's life rather than condemnation. And all of this, this interaction and this idea of living life in the margins, uh, uh, after, after this conversation with this, uh, or after this challenge in this Bible study, the other thing that changed it was I read a book by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And I have talked about the Ragamuffin Gospel so much. I have preached the mag Ragamuffin Gospel ragamuffin gospel so much that sometimes I can't tell which is Brennan Manning and which is Rick Court anymore, all right? I have probably plagiarized this entire book because it's had that much meaning in my life. And he says this, it's up on the screen. Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together. They know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. And as we glance up, we are astonished to find the, G the eyes of Jesus open with wonder, deep with understanding, and gentle with compassion. And that Jesus loves us that there are no bad people, only people God through Jesus loves, and that nobody is too far from God. If you haven't read Ragamuffin Gospel, I challenge you to find a copy. It's old, it's valuable, and it is astounding. And, um, and then you will hear, Rick preached that before. <laughs> He goes on to say this, 
again, it's up on the screen. He, God, is not moody or capricious. God knows no seasons of change. He has a single, relentless stance toward us. God loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. And then he continues, it's not on the screen, but just listen. He says, false gods, the gods of human manufacturing, the ones that we make up, despise sinners. But the Father of Jesus loves all of us no matter what they do. But of course, this is almost too incredible for us to accept. And then he says, this is the good news. The gospel of grace. What a great thing. That no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, it doesn't matter our political affiliation or orientation or disposition, that the limping, the hurting, the broken person is you and me. Because healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Right? Jesus really loves everyone. Jesus loves you. He loves me. He was the first to believe that all lives matter. That's the good news. It's great news. The good news is the greatest news. Do you agree with me that the good news is the greatest news? All of us here, you get that, right? I pray that you understand that. If for some reason you don't see that the good news is the greatest news, I would love to talk with you after. We could chat about it. I would be, I, I'd take you out to lunch. And, and, and we could get together and talk about how the good news is the greatest news, that it can transform lives, that it transformed my life, that when I discovered at 16 years old that there was nobody who could love me like Jesus and that there was nothing I could do to make Jesus stop loving me, it transformed and changed my life. And I know people, uh, pe uh, people I've met over and over and that's happened to their lives. Sometimes even middle school boys and their lives are changed and now they're men who follow after Jesus. Dave Falcone was a middle school boy and I watched Dave, he was that middle school boy, right? But his life has changed and now he's a pastor on our staff, right? Nicole Shaw, who is Nicole Widmer, sitting in the back row, was a middle school girl. At the same time, he was a middle school boy. Can you imagine having Dave Falcone and Nicole Shaw in the same youth ministry? God help me. <laughs> but lives can be changed because Jesus loves us and Jesus continues to love us. Now, this is not on the screen, but again, I, I, would, I want to say it's me, but this is Brendan Manning. Uh, so let's just act like Rick's saying this. The good news means we can stop lying to ourselves. That right here in this room, we can stop lying to ourselves. That the sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. It keeps us from denying that though Christ was victorious, our battle with lust, greed, and pride still rages within us. And as a sinner who has been redeemed, I can acknowledge that I am often unloving, irritable, angry, and resentful with those closest to me. And when I go to church, I can leave my white hat at home and admit that I have failed. Because God not only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. And because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics 
to make myself presentable to God. I can accept ownership of my own poverty and powerlessness and neediness. That's good stuff, isn't it? We can be people who know we need God and stop thinking that we are right or good. It's beyond good news. It's great news. That there are no bad people, that nobody is too far from God, that uh, thinking you're right and knowing you're wrong, that there's no, we can see beyond the worst in someone, that we can see the best in each person, that we can, have this, uh, we can speak blessing into people's lives and not condemnation. That's all terrific. It's wonderful. It's great news. But now we're going to go from preaching into meddling. If the good news is the greatest news, and we all agree it is, right? It's the greatest news. If good news is the greatest news, what's happened? Why isn't this place overflowing with people? Why isn't our Voorhees campus struggling to fit people into the room? Because we're not. There's always ample room for, chair, oh, for people with empty chairs. Why are churches across the country, this is a sad statistic, churches across the country are not keeping up with the population growth. So even in communities where churches are growing, the community is growing faster, so they're actually losing their influence. So if the good news is the greatest news, what's happened? I have one painful explanation, and I'm sure there's more. Over the years, the church, the capital C church that we're all included in, has become more like Pharisees and less like Matthew. And that some people are in and some people are out instead of inviting everyone to the party. And we stopped inviting people and started drawing lines. And over the years, after the lines have been drawn, sometimes the lines are drawn by people outside the church, and sometimes the lines are drawn by people inside the church, but we've now got insiders and outsiders. And both are drawing lines. But Jesus lived in the margins. His disciples lived in the margins. Jesus was present with those outside the lines, those and in, with those in the, uh, in the margins of culture and society. And why? Because Jesus didn't see the lines, or I would even argue he refused to see the lines, and he spent three years trying to erase the lines. So Matthew had this broad collection of relationships. He had Jesus, the Son of God, the disciples, the tax collectors, these other sinners, and he had an equally powerful influence. And my challenge is that I think you and I and the church need to spend more time crossing lines, moving outside the lines that have been drawn, not closer to our church friends and family, but living in the extremes at the edges, increasing our influence. And that doesn't happen while sitting in rows. It happens when the people in the rows move out beyond the building. 
And so if there's something you want to talk about over lunch, here's the challenge that's on the screen. If you want to be an influence, you have to be a presence. If you want to be an influence, you have to be a presence. See, people drive past our building every single day. My office in, Vor in the Voorhees campus is, uh, I have two glass walls. I'm like a fishbowl. And uh, when I look out across, out my window, I can see traffic light of Cooper and Centennial. And I can tell you that thousands of cars drive by there every single day. And there's a fender bender every single day. <laughs> Every single day, thousands of cars drive by that campus. Every single more, every Sunday morning, we put out flags and signs, and we've got a billboard-sized 24-foot trailer with a, our name on it, and we've got flags all over the corners. And every Sunday morning, cars drive by. They see our flags, and they see our signs. They see our events on social media, and they see our comments about our events. And for most, the church is just benign. It's just a building. I drive by two Jewish temples on the way here. It's benign to me. I don't know anything that goes in, on inside those things. And I'm not inspired to go inside. It's just a building to me. And they believe it's church is just not for me. Or for many, it's much worse than benign because lines have been drawn. Either they've drawn them and said, I'll never go to a place like that again. Or a line has been drawn that says, I'm not going to be welcomed in a place like that. And so they're missing the greatest good news. The greatest good news because of these invisible lines based on past experience. So, uh, I, have, I have a confession. I haven't been to a baseball game in like three years. It's because I don't like baseball. <laughs> I have no interest in baseball at all. Uh, Baseball season is a time for me to find something else to watch on TV. It's just my least interested sport. I don't ever watch it on television. I don't have interest in a baseball game. Uh, if someone offers me tickets, I always tell them, nah, thank you, I'm busy, or no thanks, I don't want those tickets. I just have no interest in baseball. Now, I know for others of you, and some of you are making those faces right now, you can't imagine that because baseball is important to you and you're allowed to have that. You're allowed to think that. And it's either important to you because uh, you played baseball in your past or you have uh, baseball has just been inspiring to you and you love baseball. And that's, that's terrific. That, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And you can't understand my baseball-free life. His life is missing something because he doesn't have baseball in it. And I know that some of you are thinking that, and that's fine. Now, here's where I want you to hear. This is really important, okay? If you invited me to a baseball game, even though I don't like baseball, even though I don't understand why you like baseball, because we're friends, because we have this relationship, and you said, would you like to come to a baseball game with me? I would go. 
Now, I would probably think, this is so awful boring. I don't understand what's going on, and I don't know how he or she likes this. But I probably would enjoy the conversation. I would enjoy the chicken and pizza crab fries. I would enjoy all those kinds of things that were associated with the game. And maybe, just possibly, I would come away from there thinking, you know what, Bryce Howard, he's got an impressive beard. See, I don't know anything about baseball. I really don't know anything about baseball. He's an outfielder, right? Okay, all right, I got that. And he has a beard, right? Okay, did I make my point? <laughs> I don't know anything about baseball, and I don't care. But I might be inspired to go back again because of my experience that I had with you. That is so similar, eerily similar to our experience with the people that we know, that we work with, that we uh, are related to, and that we live near, is that they have no interest at all in going to church. They have no thought of it, and they can't figure out why you get up to do that. And while we think, how could they miss out on something that's so good, that's so great, it's the greatest good news. They are at home, and they have no interest because they can't make the connection. But they have a connection to you. And it's the way we cross the invisible lines. It's the way we're going to break down the lines. So that men and women and boys and girls discover that there is the greatest good news imaginable. That no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what they thought about God in the past, no matter what their experiences with church has been in the past, that they can be loved, that they are loved by God and they can be in relationship with that God that loves them more than they can imagine. That's why simple things like National Night Out are so incredibly important. And it is on August 6th, and the times that we're serving are uh, uh, 5.30 to 6.30 and 6.30 to 8. And we're not passing out water. Sorry, Lonnie. We are directing traffic. And here's why we're directing traffic at that event. All right, We're directing traffic because way back three years ago, before we launched this campus, before we started, I stopped in at the Mount Laurel Township, and I said, hey, we're going to be a new church in town. How can we help? And they misunderstood my statement, and they said, well, what do you need from us? I said, we don't need anything from you. We want to know how we can help you. And uh, they said, well, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, we kind of feel that, that the church is seen as, uh, uh, as kind of just something that just takes and takes and takes from the community. We want to be an asset to the community. And he said, no one's ever asked us that before. Let me get back to you. And I'm like, great, that's, that's terrific. And so I called him back, and he said, I didn't really think you were going to call me back. And I said, yeah, I said, how can we help, all right? And so he said, well, uh, we're, we always need help with parking. And I said, sure. I had no idea how I was going to get people to volunteer to park. But that began a relationship with the Mount Laurel Township. Mount Laurel Township then found out that we were in a school and that we were paying rent for the school and they said, you know, you're like a community group. And I said, no, we are a community group. 
And he said, how, would you, how about, would you like to use the community uh, center? And I was like, uh, yeah, you don't remember that I asked you three years ago, and you said it was really expensive. <laughs> and I said, but we can't afford it. And he said, we wouldn't charge you. And so we get this space for free. Do you know that's a $40,000 savings in a year? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? All because they see us as an asset to the community. When I first, when I first started telling people, uh, other uh, people in Mount Laurel, that we were going to uh, start a campus here, immediately people who were church folks started saying, oh, let me introduce you to the pastors of the Mount Laurel churches. And I politely said, that's terrific, but I really don't want to meet the pastors of other Mount Laurel churches. I said, could you introduce me to the other people in town? Because the Mount Laurel pastors are not going to come to our church, right? They've got churches to go to. I said, I want to meet people like um, the librarian, who's a wonderful woman named Becky, who partnered with us for our uh, Build-A-Bunny event at Christmas time. I want to meet the managers at Build-A-Bunny is Easter. <laughs> this is what happens when I'm way off script and I am eight minutes over time. Yeah. All right, so uh, this is why National Night Out is so important. You need to sign up for that, okay? Uh, uh, because we are going to continue to be an asset to the community because that is erasing the lines that separate us from the community. Another way is if you want to be an influence, you have to be a presence. Maybe you need to increase your social engagement with your work friends. Take them out to eat with your church friends. What would it look like for your worlds to collide? That's what Matthew tried. He became the author of bio, Jesus' biography. The good news is the greatest news. God loves all of us. Everyone is invited. There are no lines drawn. So how can you be present this week in the lives of the people, the men and women who believe that the church is not for them and that God doesn't love them or God best is benign. We stand with you for closing prayer. So God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you, God, for their faith-filled lives. And I pray, God, that as we continue to move in and out through our communities, through our towns, through our neighborhoods, God, uh, even in our families, that we would see how we can move into the margins. God, that we can uh, press closer towards those who are far from you. God, that we would take our relationships that we have already been fostering, God, because they're our friends, they're our coworkers, they're our, our relatives. God, and we would see how those relationships can be used to further your kingdom. God, that there are men and women who are, who, and boys and girls, who are part of our communities, part of our circles of friends. And God, they are far from you. And God, we have the greatest good news imaginable. God, we don't want it to be the best kept secret. And so God, I pray that as we move in and through these uh, activities in our week, that we would be inspired and challenged and drawn towards introducing people to the God who saw us behind our tax collector booth, whatever that was, and saw something and saw through all of our darkness and saw 
the man and woman who's loved by God. And so we thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great day.